sorrow comes my way you are the shield around me always you remain like courage in the fight i hear you call my name jesus i am coming walking on the way reaching for your life the joy of the lord is my strength joy of the Lord is my strength. In the darkness I dance, in the shadows I sing. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. In the darkness I dance, in the shadows I sing. The joy of the Lord is my
opportunities for us to, to look into that. But when we ask the question, who am I? David would ask several times to God, who am I that you would consider me? The, the, all the psalmists uh, and all those uh, Old Testament prophets would often ask about that. Who am I, Lord? And, and they're asking through a filter of who does God see me to be? But I think one of the great challenges that we have as adults, as human beings uh, especially, and, and I don't want to just center that with, with adults too, but with kids and everybody, I think one of the great challenges we have is finding our identity of who we actually are. Uh, John Piper, I, I read an article from him this past week from like 1987 or whatever uh, that was, I think, still very applicable. But John Piper said in, a, in one of his articles, he said something to the extent that we actually define ourselves in accordance with how everyone else sees us, views us, or at least our perception of them. And, and so let me give you a couple of examples of that. Um, when you get all dressed up and go out someplace and uh, do you ask someone else, how do I look? And so in the, in, the, in, the, in the asking of that question, you're asking, uh, who am I? Am I presentable? Am I attractive? Am I dressed appropriately? Am I, am I acting according to whatever the cultural thing it is? You take those a couple of steps further, uh, and we, 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 we find our identity based upon the community by which we're in. And that's very, very common. I mean, you can see this uh, on the extreme level of why kids join gangs, because they're trying to find that family community that allows them to live according to the set of rules and values and expectations that they have and they want and it pushes them into these types of organizations because they may not be getting those things someplace else especially and particularly if we have uh, kids who are not raised in a dual parenting situation where you have both mom and dad it is likely for them to seek out those relationships that are void, that God had put together for the family unit, they're seeking out to fulfill those, those voids in those spots. And so the question is who I am in relation to who everybody else thinks that I am. Who, who I am in relation to how I'm accepted into this community or that community. Uh, as many of you know, I, I, I love to watch movies. There was a movie in 2011 called The Help, and it was written based upon um, uh, how desegregation and segregation was functioning within the lower south of the United States, particularly Mississippi and Alabama and those areas. And it, it's particularly interesting to me because my, my dad grew up in, in L.A., as he calls it, lower Alabama. And, and so he grew up during the, the – he was born in the mid-40s, and he grew up there – my, my wife grew up in A-Leaf, which is still and always has been a melting pot of, of cultures and societies. And then my daughter grew up here in Katy, which is uh, predominantly homogeneously white, if you look at just the numbers out there. Now, we're getting a little bit more diversity here. But when you see these three generations and you go back to this movie, The Help, what you see is someone who lived through that, someone who watched that type, that era of our time period escape, and then someone who has no ideal but just sees racial injustice as just an absolute sinful reality in, in her culture when you look at my daughter all the way back to, to her grandfather. And so we watched this film together, and in this film, Viola Davis, who is a wonderful actress, plays this, this nanny to this little white girl. Now, this is what's so interesting about this film is that in this film, there's this black nanny who is not allowed to even use the restroom inside the home because segregation is so vital to the white aristocratic people who rule that society. That's just the bottom line. You can argue with me all you want about that, but that's how it was back in the 50s and 60s. But, but in that segregation, her being lowered to a, a different level of humanity, if even human at all, depending upon who viewed her, she was given this tremendous responsibility for this little bitty girl to watch over her, to care for her, to feed her, to clothe her, to sing her to sleep, to teach her values and respect. 
And so here's someone who is not respected, someone who is devalued in the society and the culture, who is given the responsibility to raise this little white child to do the same thing. And in this, in this one scene, this little white child is, is really neglected by her mother. And this black nanny sees this, and it hurts her heart because she sees the purity of this child. And this little girl loves her because she gives such great attention to her. And she, she delivers this line, which if you've seen the movie, you, you may have heard it before, but she has the little white girl sitting on her lap, and she looks at her and she says, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. Isn't it ironic that a devalued black woman is adding value to a little white child in our society, in our culture, whether that be 50 years ago or even today? And she is showing this little girl who she is. She is smart, she is kind, and she is important. Sadly, in today's society, what we often define ourselves as who we are is really more who we're not. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. You're not smart enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not rich enough. You're not hardworking enough. You're not the right color. You're not educated enough. You're not living in the right community. You're not driving the right car. You don't have all the nicer things that all your friends who define you by community have. You're not, you're not, you're not. So many of us, particularly those of us who understand that we are the image bearers of God, that God has created us in his image, we are torn down and broken down and ripped apart and redefined by how everyone else sees us instead of how our creator sees us. We are defined by what we're not instead of who we are. And there is only but one person who can truly define who we are, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's it. But nobody wants to hear that. And it's hard to hear that through the noise of all the things you are not when all of the TikTokers and all the people on Instagram and all the people on Facebook begin to attack just a little small element of who you are, for those of you on social media, they're attacking who you're not, not who you are in Christ Jesus. To say that we have an identity crisis is an understatement. To say that mankind has always had an identity crisis is an understatement. So who are you? Who are you that God would be mindful of you? Who are you that regardless of how the world puts up the barriers and the boundaries and tells you that you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, who are you then? If you're steadily being defined and you're buying into the lie of who you're not, when do you actually get to the truth of who you are? Who are you? If you're in Christ, you might know that you're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. But what does that mean? What does that look like? How did that process happen? How was I selected for that? Why do I get to be a new creation in Christ when everyone else isn't? Is anybody else struggling with identity crisis? At least from time to time? Especially when things get tough or they don't go your way or your expectations just did not get met? Do you know more who you're not than who you are? I worked for a great man for a long time, very gregarious, very positive, very capable, godly man. I enjoyed that time working with this person. 
But you know what challenged me during the time that I worked for him? Was everyone else telling me who I wasn't. I wasn't him. He's a great godly man, and I love him dearly. But you know what? God didn't make me to be him. God made me to be me. And he made me to be me and define of who I am in Christ alone, not how the rest of the community saw who I wasn't, but who God says that I am. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to open up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, that's in the New Testament. It's probably about two-thirds or more into your Bible. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus is a really interesting church because it's not predominantly made up of Jewish believers. It's made up of Roman and Greek believers. Ephesus was this uh, crazy trade center where there was all kinds of cultures melting in there. And if you've ever been in any other culture, you'll realize there's a couple of things that really define people for who they are, and it's their language and their food. And so if you've ever traveled, you know those two things are great. Uh, it, it tells us who we are. I have the, the pleasure of volunteering at the pregnancy center, and we have this Panamanian lady there, and she and I talk about food all the time. And we got into this great argument last week uh, about who makes the best empanadas. Is it the Colombians or is it the Panamanians? And, of course, she's going to say Panamanians every time. And I, I'm telling you, Colombians, way better empanadas. That's, that's just who they are. They're empanada makers for me, right? And so she and I go back and forth about these things, but it's an important thing because this is a, a piece of cultural identity for her. I'm Panamanian. We make the best empanadas. That's who we are as a people. I'm American. I've got all these freedoms that I exercise. I can do what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want to do it because I'm an American. Try taking that to another country. It's a lot of fun to watch. It makes traveling to other countries, if you're an American, very difficult because there's always been another American who's ruined it for you. I was stranded in an airport in Mongolia. It's about half the size of this, this stage for 41 hours. There were some British people there. There was an American there who was having a little too much of the local drink, and he was acting a fool. And the British person leans over to me and says, that's your countryman. And I said, yeah, and if we wouldn't have kicked your tail in 1776, he would have been yours. See, they tried to tell me who I was by how he was acting. I told them who I was by who won. We do these sort of things. In Ephesus, you see this great cultural mixing pot, this melding, and all these different things were happening. And I will tell you something. Every single culture that has ever had all of these multiple cultures intertwined and mixed in it is full of rot, evil, and destruction. Every single one of them. Because the identity is trying to see who can one-up, who's going to be in power, who's going to be in control, especially when it is not a godly cultural melting pot. Now, I am a big fan of the multi-ethnic church. I'm a big fan of having lots of different faces and lots of different colors and lots of different languages. I'm a big fan of that because I believe that's what heaven's going to be like. I, I, I genuinely believe that that's what heaven's going to be like. And, and if you ever really want to see what worship looks like, get out of the United States and go someplace else. The Africans have got this figured out because they have actually ado adopted their culture into worship. Us Americans, particularly white Americans, we do not do a good job of worshiping as a part of who we are every day. It's just what we do on Sunday morning. And so as we look at this cultural melting pot in Ephesus, we pick up with Paul's letter, and we're going to find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And Paul's going to help us better understand as he's writing to these people of who they really are. And he says this, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed us in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray for a moment. Father, there's a lot of verses here, some big words and even some context that we're not familiar with. But Lord, I believe that your Bible is the inspired word that was given to men by you and preserved over time and centuries so that we might see, especially today, who we are and who you planned for us to be from before time even began. That you did, in fact, predestine us, you chose us, Lord, and you did great and amazing things to see that we would know who we are. And so, God, as we open up this scripture this morning, would you allow us to see how we're defined according to Christ Jesus? And would you let us, Lord, I pray now this morning over everyone in this room, that if there is but one person who is struggling with their identity, that they would stop listening to the noise of the world of who they're not and who they ought to be, but, Lord, that they would hear clearly you telling them who they are in you. The most important decision that they can make is to trust in you. And so God, walk with us this morning as we look at this passage. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Who are you? How are you defined? For the people in Ephesus, Paul is particularly writing to a, a group of people who live in an abandonment culture. And in this abandonment culture, there's all kinds of terrible things happen. And an abandonment culture, just in its simplest uh, definition, an abandonment culture is basically one who devalues human life and only sees what people can do for you, not who they actually are. We have a lot of abandonment-type relationships in our culture now. We treat a lot of transactional relationships instead of loving relationships. We, we base that friendship based upon what that person can do for us, not who they are in Christ and how Christ has brought us together for whatever the case may be. And as we continue to devalue humanity, I want you to understand that it is sad and terrible and we should all feel bad about that always because we're image bearers of God. Every human being is. God knit us together with a purpose. He's got plans for our future. He defines who we are, but we are constantly going to be in a place of questioning ourselves and questioning the value of others. And when we find it easy to question the value of others, I want you to understand that there is a, a, a fundamental challenge when you drive someone else down in value, when, they, when you degrade them in such a way, I think sometimes it really speaks more about how you view yourself and you're just projecting that onto somebody else. You open the doorway 
when you call somebody a name or you, you categorize them in a certain way that is less than you, you open the doorway for at least a little self introspection to say, I wonder if I actually view myself similar. Am I finding my shortcomings in that person and projecting that onto them in such a way? Boy, I sure am glad Jesus doesn't evaluate me the same way. I really am. What we see in this passage of Scripture are three very clear definitions of who we are, and, and, and we're going to talk about this through the context of how Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. And the very first thing we see that Paul defines us and God tells us is that I am adopted. I am adopted, and he tells us that in verse 5 of this passage. He, pre, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. In this ideal of adoption, what would happen in this culture, particularly in the Roman culture and the Greek culture, what would, what would happen is when a child was born, the child would be laid at the father's feet, and the father would decide if he wanted that child or not. Now, it may be just a matter of male or female. It may be a matter of I don't want any more children. It may be a matter that this child may have a defect of some sort that's not good enough for me or for my household. It may be a matter of, of, of I'm trying to get away from this woman, and so any children that, that she has with me, I don't want to have that because I'm going to have a divorce and go get another one. And they would lay this child at the feet of the father, and the father would either pick the child up or he would walk away. If he walked away, the child was often taken out into the woods or the wilderness or down to the marketplace and just left, abandoned. If the child was taken out into the wilderness or different areas, the likelihood of them being able to survive that were not very high. But if they were taken to the marketplace, what would often happen, particularly what would often happen, and this really messed with all those of the Roman and the Greek, those, those polytheistic worshipers who, who didn't worship the one true God, these Christians would go and they would, they would take these children into their home and they would raise them because what they saw were little image bearers of God. What they saw was a child that needed a forever family. What they saw was the future of, of humanity could be in this kid instead of leaving them there to be abandoned. Many years ago, I traveled to Uganda. Uganda is the youngest country in the entire world because they had these huge tribal wars and these children soldiers. You may know this group called Watoto, and it was these traveling African tribes that, that, that uh, go around the United States, and they sing these songs, and they tell the story about having been put into these child uh, uh, soldier situations. And it was actually a very simple concept. These, these, these guerrilla warriors, uh, these tribal warlords like Kofi and some of the others would go into this village and they would capture everybody and they would go to the youngest of children and they would put an AK-47 in their hands and they would say, if you want to live, you have to kill the elders. And they would kill the elders. And so now these kids are emotionally traumatized, six, seven, eight years old, having to fire this weapon and to kill the elders in order for them to live. And then they would get these kids hopped up on drugs and alcohol, and they would tell them, if you want a uniform, a soldier's uniform, you have to take it off of a dead body. And so these kids in, in Uganda, they, they're raised up this way, addicted to all kinds of things, murdering, killing, told this is the only way to live. Every part about their, their structure is broken. And so Uganda became the youngest country on the entire planet because most of the people who were over the age of 40 were killed by those who were under the age of 15. And so as these wars begin to break down and these things stop happening, you have all of these children who are coming out of this emotionally traumatized who began to have children. And due to animistic practices and other things, some of the things that would happen is that they would actually take children and they, they would put babies inside the foundation of buildings asking for blessing. 
They would abandon these children to be able to do this. So a couple of years back, I was there in Uganda, and we were touring this Watoto place, and we went into this one place that was a nursery, and it was about the size of this room. And every child in there was under the age of three months, every single one. And there was probably 100, 150 babies in there. And one little guy was just crying, and, and I mean, it just breaks your heart when you walk in. And I just leaned over, and I just put my hand over his chest. I just began to pray, and the kid quietened down. And the man running the place, he looks at me and goes, you should come back. You need more hands. I said, man, I don't know if I could do this. This is hard for me. I said, how do, you, how do you do this job? And he goes, actually, I have the easy job, but this man over here, he has the difficult job. I said, well, share that with me. He says, every day he goes to the local dump and he tries to find babies. And I said, how do you do that? And his answer to me was, every now and then I find one of them alive. Guys, this is... 2015, 2010, somewhere in there. This is not first century world. This is an abandonment culture in such a way. Every now and then I find one of them alive. Could you imagine how terrible that job would be? Could you imagine why there's a widespread cultural belief that this is acceptable just to leave these children out here? Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. When Paul writes to us that we've been adopted, he's addressing to the church of Ephesus particularly, but also to us, that once you are adopted, you are picked up by someone, and you are predestined to be picked up by the one who defines who you are, and you do and will forever have an identity that is that of the heir of that family. The oddest thing about adoption, particularly in that time, was that you could disown a blood relative, but you could not disown an adopted child. An adopted child forever was a choice and a decision, and they were yours, and you couldn't get rid of them if you wanted to. And so many a times, these Christians would go and they would adopt these children, but other people would also go and they would adopt these children, and they would not do so to bring them in as a family member. They would raise that child up so they could be future slaves or future prostitutes. And so for them, an abandoned child was nothing more than finding a revenue stream down the road. I want you to think about that for a moment. We live in a time where there are more people enslaved right now, today, than there ever has been in any other part of history, particularly child trafficking and human trafficking. There are lots of people who are doing this exact same thing today. Things haven't changed in 2,000 years. Wouldn't it be great to be one of those kids and to be told who you really are, a child valued and worthy of God's love. Paul writes to this church at Ephesus and he says that we have been adopted and that we've been brought forward for the, for the pleasure of God himself and that he's urging them, especially those who actually themselves are slaves, that if they find themselves in that situation, no matter what the world has to dish out to you, no matter if you are a slave, no matter if you are a prostitute by force, no matter if you're all these things, who you really are is adopted. Who you really are is chosen by the Lord God Almighty so that you might find salvation. These are for those who have already accepted that. And so what he tells us this is that who you are in Christ is, is defined by who found you, not by where you were found. Now, just think about that for a second. You know, one of the great tragedies of the American church since day is that we glorify sin. 
oh, I used to be this. Oh, I used to do that. If God to- only knew this about me, oh, I drink too much. Oh, I, I, all these other things. We, we, we glorify sin in such a way to lower our value instead of elevating ourselves to saying, God may have found me there, but it's not where he found me. It's who found me. It's who adopted me, who called me in to be his own, who loves me, who is there for me, who sent his son to die for me. And it doesn't matter where he found me, whether it was the depths of these dumps or or whether it was at the bar or whether he found me at church camp because I'm a good Christian boy who grew up that way. It's not where you were found, it's who found you. Who are you? Are you adopted or are you still trying to play the abandonment card? Are you still listening to what the world is saying you're not instead of God saying, I found you. Not only did I found you, I went looking for you. I went chasing after you. I went to the very depths of humanity to find you because you are loved, you are valued, and I am adopting you and bringing you in, not so you can be a future revenue stream for me, but so that you can be my very own. Joint heirs with me. Who are you? Are you abandoned or are you adopted? I've been told that in the United States that if every family, if every church actually in the United States would adopt one child, we would do away with all of the orphanages and the child protective services in the United States. That if one church would adopt one child. Yes, there's that many churches in case you're wondering. You're probably thinking, are there that many kids? But yeah, there's that many churches. I've never been in that situation, but I do know this, that when God rescued me from wherever it was that I needed to be rescued from, that he adopted me and called me his own. In Watoto, what they do with these children is they raise them up out of these nurseries. They move them into a group home until they're about age eight, and they send them to a dormitory uh, where the boys live in one dormitory and the girls live in the other, kind of a uh, British-type boarding school. They teach these kids how to read and write Swahili and English and uh, uh, French, and they give them a skill of some sort. And the reason why they do that is because they want these kids to never go back to where they were found. They want them to be better than where they were found and know that they're better than they were found. That they have the ability to get an education. They have the ability to grow up. They have the ability to be more than the world says you were found in a dump. It's not where you're found. It's who found you. If you're struggling with your identity this morning, I would ask you simply this. Who found you? Who's looking for you? Who wants to adopt you? The second thing that Paul tells us this is that, that, that we are redeemed. You may be singing that song, I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know that song? I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I, I don't know all the songs. I hadn't sang it in so long. We, we quit singing hymns here. we gotta, we got to get those back, okay? He says that I'm redeemed, and he's talking about redemption. And according to verse 7 here, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him we have redemption of blood. Now, what would happen in the church of Ephesus or in the community of Ephesus is every now and then they would have a, 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 a trade day or a craft show type thing, right? But instead of, of handicrafts and all that sort of stuff, they would bring all the slaves up and they would auction them off. And so people would, would move their slaves around. They would sell. They would buy and sell. Oh, I need more male, more male slaves over here because I've got you know, work to be done in the field or whatever, and whatever the case may be. They would do those things. And the ideal of redemption was I would bid on whoever of these slaves that I want, and once I actually won that auction on them, I would go and I would pay for them. I would redeem them financially because of the, the, the bidding that I won on the auction. 
And so when, when, when he talks about being redeemed, what he says is, is that someone has purchased you. Now, we look at redemption as this great, glorious outcome. But for the church at Ephesus and for the times of theirs, redemption was nothing more than a transaction based upon the amount of money that you were worth. And someone says, I will pay that amount. And they actually paid that amount. And now you became someone else's possession. So, quick question. Look under your, under your arm here, right here by, by your, everybody look at that. How much are you worth? Look at your price tag. Is it there? When we start to put value on other people's human lives, we devalue all human lives. When we began to put a monetary mark on someone, we look at them in such a way to say, you know what, you're only worth this much, or you're not worth this much, or I have a budget today, I can only get so many folks out there. The ideal of redemption may sound sweet to us if we've grown up in church, because what we understand is the rest of what Paul is saying in this verse. Because what he is saying is, as people have purchased with money, Jesus himself actually bought you with blood, which is far more valuable than money. And so when he saw you wherever you were, he says that you are redeemed if you will but receive me. Read that again with me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And he says no matter what your situation is, no matter how challenging things may be for you, there is one who has not only the right but the ability to redeem all mankind by his blood. It's not that he needs more money, needs more gold, needs more riches or whatever. He's saying that the blood of Jesus Christ is all that is necessary to redeem you from whatever you're in. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to come out of slavery. That doesn't mean that your entire situation is going to change. What it's going to mean is that your entire eternity is going to change. And the redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ is what we're all really looking for. Sure, we'd like for our situation to get different, but our eternal situation can be absolutely changed by the redemption of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 tells us something very similar. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This goes right along with what Paul is saying to these, to these slaves in Ephesus. Listen, I understand your situation is bad and you don't like it and you don't have control over your own life as much as you'd like to. But hear this. And he's actually really pushing these slaves to say, live honorably despite your situation. Don't give someone a reason to question and challenge you because regardless of what that slave owner paid for you, the one who is really setting you free, the Redeemer, has paid his blood for you. And he's willing to pay his blood for all those who would receive salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And so whatever your situation is, listen, it's better because of Jesus. Maybe not so much on this earth, but it will be in eternity. And he's urging these people in Ephesus to stop being defined by, oh, I'm just some slave. I'm not worthy of this. The rest of society has already looked at me and deemed me what my value is. I even got a price at this last market for whatever that is. They're saying, no, the redemption really comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. So who's redeeming you? Because if someone's defining you by the world's standards, there's really not much redeeming about that. Do you have things that are not of high redeeming value in your life? Just pick a television show. Does it really make you a better person because you binge watch 18 hours of Netflix's whatever? How did you redeem your time? What about your quarantine? Did you redeem your time trying to get a little bit better? Did you try to pay a price for that? I tried to lose some weight. It worked for about three months, and then I put it all right back on. The redemption he's talking about is a once-and-for-all payment in the blood of Jesus Christ for those who would believe because this was God's plan from the beginning to take you from an abandonment culture, a culture that wants to continue to drive down your value, 
and elevate you to an heir of Christ forever because you were redeemed by his blood. That's what we need more than anything else when we start thinking about who I am. When other people or other situations tell us who we're not, who we are is an adopted, redeemed child of God. I think sometimes we don't fully understand the payment made for us. We value our own life so much, but we miss out how much God has done for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And that that sacrifice was once and for all for all mankind. And if we grew up knowing this, or if we're we're just kind of um, not well discipled in our Christianity, and we're still young in our faith, then we just kind of accept, oh yeah, God paid the price for me. But if you really ever stop to sit down and weigh the cost of what that is, you know, many of us are looking at these stimulus checks, as, as they're being called, or these, these uh, Rescue America, or I don't know what they're called. But we're looking at this from a lot of different ways of saying, oh, the government's going to give me this money. They've determined that I need, what is it, twelve, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400? I need $1,400 according to this if I didn't make this much money. Someone's already determined how much of my tax dollars I'm going to get back because I make too much or not enough money. Don't you just love that? I just love that someone else has already figured out what it costs for me to live my life. I love it. I think it's just awesome. Don't you? This is exactly what's going on in Ephesus, but to a higher degree. They literally are putting price tags on people's lives, and Jesus saying, I'll take that, and I'll take it up a notch, and I'll put a price tag on the very soul of that human being, and I'll pay for it in my blood. That's the level of redemption that Paul is encouraging them and encouraging us. If we're in Christ, who we are is defined by who bought us, not by who owns us. Many times we just give away our own souls here. Sometimes we're bought or we're enticed by the things of this world, but who really bought us was Jesus Christ. If you're really redeemed, if you're really looking to see what God can do in your life, you understand it's not who owns you, but it's who bought you. And yes, in this situation, it may seem like it's the same person, and it is. But in other situations outside of the love of Christ for us, we're defined by who owns us. Brand names, high-dollar clothing, nice cars, the neighborhood we live in, the schools our kids go to. In our culture in America today, the thing that owns us are all those other things. And instead of them actually paying for us, we pay them. Isn't that messed up? It's absolutely backwards. We pay them so that we can be redeemed according to their value level. When Jesus is saying, I'll pay it all, every bit of it. The third thing we see here in this passage of Scripture is that Paul says that I am sealed. This is such an interesting, interesting passage. He says this in verse 13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. It was not uncommon back in Paul's day for those slaves to receive tattoos or brands who would identify them with who they belong to, who owned them. We do that now with animals and cattle. We put tags in their ears or we, we brand them. We even have some fraternities that uh, here in the United States that actually put branding on their own people. We have a, a, a majority of people in the sex slave business right now, particularly in the United States, often have a, a measure of different tattoos. There's a task force in Houston designed specifically to fight sex trafficking, and one of the first things they look for are the tattoos on these victims. They drive the streets literally at night looking for those tattoos. And why is that important? Because they're placed someplace that is visible, usually on the shoulder, on the back shoulder somewhere, 
that identifies the young lady usually who is working wherever in that proximity is, that she is part of a certain crew that all run this place. It's become territorial in such a way. And not only do these sex traffickers own this territory, they believe they own those young ladies. They have sealed them with their mark. They have placed upon them a mark of ownership. It's 2021. Same sort of stuff was happening in the first century church. Humanity really hasn't changed much, and so our need for salvation, a need for redemption, a need for adoption is still just as strong. But here's what Jesus says. Here's what Paul writes down telling us about what Jesus tells us about being sealed by the Holy Spirit that we're put down and marked as a seal, promised by the Holy Spirit. It's like a down payment, he says, of God's possession. And he tells us that, that if we're marked by the Holy Spirit, then that Holy Spirit has says that who you are is defined by who Christ says you are, that you are sealed by Christ alone. And once you belong to him, you cannot be removed from his hand. Now, I'll get into a little bit of this theology, but I don't like to get in too deep. But I'm just going to do this just for fun, because for some of you, this may be an interesting conversation. When we talk about the ideal of once saved, always saved, we could really go back to the time change on this and say, hey, I saved an hour last year, so I'm always saved, so I don't want to change it again, right? But in the, some of you will get that later on. Some of you won't get that at all. That's okay. When we talk about the ideal of once saved, always saved, it is highly debated, usually along theologians, and, and what does that mean? Does that mean once I'm saved, I no longer continue to sin? Or, uh, or I can lose my salvation, and so I have to be saved again. So let me just clarify for you where I stand on this and, and just briefly tell you why and tell you why I think this is important. First of all, I believe that once saved, we are indeed always saved. Now, that means that I have been justified in Christ, that I have been adopted by him, I have been redeemed by him, and that I have been sealed by his Holy Spirit that says once and for all, a permanent mark has been placed on me that says I belong to God. And I belong to him because the redemption that was paid in the blood of Jesus Christ covers over me and washes over my sins once and for all. However, however, my sanctification, which is just a big churchy word of being made holy and set apart, the process of that sanctification will go throughout my entire lifetime until one day I am made completely new in a new body where I am not capable of sinning any longer. But in the meantime, I am justified in Christ once and for all. I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am his. No one can take that from me. I can commit all kinds of sins, even though it should grieve my heart and it should grieve God's heart. But the process of being made like him is going to ebb and flow based upon a lot of different situations in my life and my life choices. I don't instantly stop sinning once I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I do become a new person once I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the mark of that is the seal of the Holy Spirit who now dwells with me and tells me when I'm in those valleys that I should pay a little bit more attention to what I ought to be doing and how I ought to go back to the scriptures if I'm wondering how to live and how I should consult the Holy Spirit and pray to God and say, I don't know what's going on in this situation. That is not a license to sin by any means whatsoever. But in the process of that, of the ebbing and flowing, what we see is the reason why we're able to ebb instead of flow and go back to where we were is because the seal that God's put on us is that constant calling of the Holy Spirit that dwells with us permanently, calling us to come home, calling us to come back, to be back with that community of believers, to be back with Christ. And so there are times by which we're, we see in Scripture where we quench the Holy Spirit or we have a, a consciousness that's seared 
It's because we've chosen against the Holy Spirit. We've pushed him out in such a way to say that I still have the free will choice to make my own decisions, and I've chosen to ignore the Holy Spirit today. I don't have difficulty knowing what the right thing to do is. I just don't want to do it. And the more I get wrapped up in my sin and the more I embrace my sin, the more it looks like I may not have ever been saved at all. Now, that is a possibility. But if I have, in fact, received Jesus and I've received the redemption of his blood for the forgiveness of my, of my sins as predestined by God's plan to adopt me and take me out of this abandonment culture and make me forever his, my identity in Christ is not that of constant, consistent sinner. My identity in Christ is a child of the king. And as a child of the king, I am forgiven and I can go back and I ought to strive to not do those sins. Paul himself struggled with some of those things. He even thanked God for the thorn in his flesh that reminded him of his need to be dependent upon God. He knew that there was going to be all kinds of challenges with him living out his life. But he says, I am sealed forever and I'm a child of the king. John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, you gave the right to become children of God. If you're struggling with your identity, one of the best things you can realize is that who you are in Christ is a child of the king. And nobody messes with the child of the king. The child of the king does not just have all these ways that he can go out and live however he wants to, because there's consequences for that too. But a child of the king is protected by the king himself. He is covered by the mark, the seal, the Holy Spirit that's upon him, that dwells within him forever and ever. And so when the world begins to tell you who you're not, start looking at who the scripture tells you who you are. You are adopted. You were chosen. Even though the world abandoned you, you were chosen. You were predestined to be chosen because that's what God wanted to do for you. You're redeemed because someone paid the price of, of his blood for you where no other sacrifice could handle that. And you are sealed forever knowing that none of that's ever going to change. We're not going to send you away. We're not going to shun you. You are, in fact, belonging to God forever. You are a child of the King. Who am I? Who am I? I'm adopted, I'm redeemed, I'm sealed, and I'm a child of the king. And you know, sometimes you just need to sit down and remind yourself of that. When the rest of the world is telling you who you're not, when all the other indicators out there are making you feel bad about yourself or less than, don't let every other person or every other environment or every other thing in the world start to define you when Christ has already done that. He has already told you who you are. That's why this week's reading, there's a key, uh, key ideal in there that says, I believe I'm significant because of my position as a child of God. Sometimes we look for that significance and we try to find it in so many different ways. But really our significance is based upon who we are, not what we do, not what we wear, not where we live, not what we look like. It's who we are in Christ Jesus. And I, for one, am glad that he had a plan from the very beginning to say, listen, I've already got this figured out. You're not sure who you are? Just ask me. Stop asking the rest of the world. Do you know who you are? Do you know who Jesus has called you to be? Do you know what he has done for you to give you the identity that will, in fact, satisfy? He laid his life down at the cross, and he picked it back up three days later to demonstrate his power over death because he loves you and me. I believe that to be true, and I believe that what we believe influences the way we think, act, and live our life.
encourage you to continue to read along with us. I want you to ask yourself this week, who am I really? Who does God say that I am? Not who does the rest of the world tell me that I'm supposed to be? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for what he has done for us. We thank you that he has given us, uh, Father, not just an escape plan, but a, a way to live, a reality. That, Father, he loves us in such a way that he died on the cross. That he's adopted us as sons and daughters, Lord. That he has brought us to a place of, of justification by his blood, Lord. And that he is sanctifying us through the work of the Holy Spirit. That he is working on all the things in our lives that we're holding on to or that are continuing to do challenging things in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you that he loves us. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you, Lord, that we are children of the King. And we desire, Lord, that we would grow up to be more like our Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we reflect on that a little bit and sing this morning.